John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed Entry090.EX2816, Certificate Number 31179. Backgammon. Now, you like games. I sure do. Because you are uh, you're a crafty thinker. You like puzzles. You like... We we just we just uh, in our last episode talked about a a little puzzle trip we went on together. That's right. I I don't like the competitive angle of games. Oh really? I mean, on a game show, I'm going to play to win. I'm a game day player, John. I know. I know you are. And one would say that you were one of the most competitive gamesmen in recent memory. But around the dining room table, I think it's a bad look. I remember right? I got into a fight with my brother over a clue game as a kid. And it, I was not wrong. He had he had actually said he didn't have the wrench. And when he did, when so, he did oh, in so fact, he, have the wrench. Was he cheating, lying, or was he just not paying attention? I think he's just not paying attention, because yeah. you don't care. But uh, that really stuck with me, that what a stupid thing to get in a fight about. Uh, you know, lives are not on the line in a game of clue. Mr. Body's already dead. <laughs> I love... I love the the this has become a, an episode in the education of Ken Jennings. It's just uh, like what I like in a game is to excel. Like I don't I don't care if I win or not. I you want to beat the game. No, I just feel like at one point in the game, I like I, yeah, I did okay at the game. I I grokked what the game was about, and I I did well. But I got someone, the, I briefly had the longest road in Catan or or whatever. If someone comes from behind and trounces you at the end, that doesn't. That doesn't uh, affect your, your feelings? No, I don't have any ego bound up in in, uh, in casual gaming. And I think it's because on purpose, I'm like, this is a social event. I need to turn off the lizard brain that is just dying to just kick ass at categories. Now, that's interesting because, because uh, most of these games, in fact, almost every kind of board game or card game or dice game, they are primarily social exchanges. But... Um, what what a weird basis for a social interaction, right? Right, like let's try to destroy each other by getting more nines in a row, making more melds. Yeah, games are the games are all sort of war proxies, and the introduction of of dice or random you know randomness into it, uh, luck is you know it's a very Greek way of introducing the gods into <laughs> into your your battle do you feel, so a chess game is has the gods have no input right but uh it's it's just uh, the craftiness of where you moved your elephant but it, as soon as dice are involved or or the shuffling of a deck that almost makes it higher stakes like because i was thinking that the dice would be introduced to make it you know more of a open social thing that anyone can play and not just people of the same skill level or particular masters. But it, actually, the stakes go way up if the gods are involved. Well, that's right. And, and uh, I mean, luck is never... Most people do not attribute luck truly to randomness. They, they, they imbue they, they, it with a kind of spiritual angle. They attribute bad luck to randomness. Right. right? Good, luck, good luck is earned. Right. Bad luck but, is something that's been done to them by an unfeeling universe. Although, although people that, that have bad luck are... Um, you know they're regarded as, I think, in a lot of cultures, tainted. Right? Yeah. You don't want to. You don't want someone with bad luck to 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 
touch your drink or they get or thrown whatever. off the boat. Yeah, they do. <laughs> like we just like we uh, got we you know we conscripted Kevin and now the storm started. Let's well, throw Kevin the, into the Mediterranean. Right. The the wind died down and and it won't pick up again until we. Until we throw the littlest midshipman overboard. And we all know that Kevin has no control over the wind. Poor Kevin. I mean, the appeal of astrology is that there's vast cosmic forces that affect my little life. And that's plausible to me. Right. I mean, if the vast cosmic forces are very vast, of course. Of course. Uh, the ram moving in front of the sun could affect my life or whatever. But the other way, the idea that one little guy could affect the vast forces of wind and weather or whatever, seems a little less tempting to me. I think the, I think the introduction of dice... Um, enables, I think maybe it was a gift to the gods because they could show favor to the, to the ones they preferred without actually having to set fire to any bushes. They didn't have to, you know, they didn't have to appear, uh, with their garments dragging in the mud. They can, uh, if it's a God who requires faith, you know, a burning right. bush, bush is a real tip off. That's right. Uh, chariots of fire <laughs> descending from heaven would make me a believer. Sure, especially to to influence your victory over a table <laughs> right. game. Right. If, if I need to take out King Sennacherib <laughs> and suddenly God sends fiery steeds, like even King Sennacherib should be converting to Judaism at right. this point. Um, but, it, you know, it's a very subtle way in which uh, God could literally play dice with the universe without without making his presence known. And it's maybe not surprising that the first dice, the first dice made of bone uh, were were discovered in Mesopotamia, in the Cradle of Civilization, in the, the uh, probably 3,000 BC, so almost 5,000 years ago. Are they quasi-religious? Because uh, a lot of that early stuff started out as a divining tool that later became recreational. You know, are, let, let's find in the Bible. Often, the will of God is decided by casting lots. Casting lots, right? Uh, by uh, a dice or a dice proxy. Uh, in fact. The uh, the original dice were found along with a board game that is effectively backgammon. Wait, really? Yeah. Um, so dice were dice were invented more or less uh, along with uh, along with the game of backgammon in the city of Ur in present day. Imagine finding Ur-Iraq. a ziggurat and going into some room and it's just stacked floor to ceiling with Candyland and Uncle Wiggly. <laughs> And stuff like that, <laughs> but on terracotta tablets. The 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 game of backgammon is one of the oldest uh, board games, and or one of the oldest games. Is it effectively unchanged, or is it just more or less unchanged? The original game, as discovered in uh, in these excavations, is um, is basically the same uh, this. Same setup, right? There are 12 points per side. There are two rows, and there's a and gameplay is presumed to go in a kind of horseshoe shape. Yeah, that's around. the thing about these games is we don't have the instructions. Although we do often have, uh, they're referred to in so much literature of the time, like ancient writings routinely refer to backgammon. And so we are able to reconstruct reconstruct. gameplay. I know that Egyptian game, Senet or whatever, like they have the board and they know how the pegs go in. It's clear how it's clear what it's for, but apparently the tradition of how to play was purely oral. Right. So there's a bunch of competing theories as to how you would actually, what happens if you land on the space with the skull? Yeah. And also, I mean, if you see a, if you see a, a a drawing of it or a, a mosaic of it, it's still not clear. Like, Exactly how the game's being right, played. Right, we can see, like, the, I think there are hieroglyphics where you can see people playing Senate. We're like, aha, this is a game. Right. Two, you can see two children playing, but it, it doesn't answer. Um, so in the end game, do I have to land directly on the space or do I, you know, that kind of stuff is not is not handled on the tomb wall. But backgammon, uh, backgammon was discovered in King Tut's tomb. Like, it it uh, was it was popularized throughout the Mideast, uh, the Middle East and is continues to be popular there today. And mostly... Unchanged, minor, you know, minor improvements, minor variations have been made over uh, the millennia, but it's a re- it, the the those old boards are recognizable to to us today. And but backgammon is called tables in much of the world, and was called tables in why is it called tables? Because it's on a table. Well, it's a if, table game, a tabletop you, game. If you play it on a t- <laughs> well, then you need a, presumably you need a name to distinguish it from all other games. Well, except. 
that uh, was the only it was game. the only one. <laughs> <laughs> hey, does everybody want to play a game tonight? It was on a table. It was called tables. It's probably older than chess. Then it is, right? Yeah. Um, if it's, if it's really five thousand years old, older, that's insane. Older than chess, and and uh, and and always played with fifteen checkers. Um, they got it right the first time. They really did. That's right. So, uh, it it's like wor- Coke. And it was always a game that um, that you could kind of you could bet you could bet on the on the results. The thing about backgammon is that um, that sort of like poker, it has an element of chance, but there it is also it's it's also a game of skill, and so it's not like just betting on a roll of the dice. It it's a, a the dice add that element of. Um, that that makes the game easy for anyone to play, right? The the rules are pretty simple. Although every time, every single time I sit down to play backgammon, I have to remind myself of the rules. So that they are simple to understand, but at least for me, difficult to retain. I have the worst memory for game rules, and yeah. I don't know what that says about me. Like, is it procedural? Would I have a hard time like uh, taking off in an airplane too? I, but I, yeah, I always have to, I've played back in exactly once. No, come on. That can't be true. And no. And it was just recently, like I played Baskin for the first time a year or two ago with a friend who had kind of just rediscovered it. And I think, uh, I think he remembered, it was like how the baby boom has echoes and shockwaves for time. Like I think he was remembering it as a signifier of grown upness from the seventies when he was a kid. Right. And he wanted to try it out now that he was the same age as the adults he saw playing it. And it took, it took me maybe 15 minutes to learn the rules. And I think I won, which means there must be a lot of luck involved because uh, I'm, I'm not a good player. I mean, it's an obvious, it, it's an obvious game. And, um, and also, you know, it depends on the skill level of the person you're playing against. You can, there, there's always going to be an optimal play kind of, uh, kind of like any, like, like chess or even Jeopardy. There's a, there's a way you can program a computer to know what the best move is in any given uh, instance. It's not a hard problem like teaching a computer chess. It is a very hard problem. And in fact, uh, computers being used, computers being programmed to solve backgammon games predates computers being programmed to solve chess games. The first, the first instance of a computer beating a human being in a, um, in a, in a competitive game was, uh, it was in 1979, the, the then world backgammon champion, um, whose name was Luigi Villa was beaten by a computer programmed by a computer programmer named Hans Berliner. So it was really a, a, a war of the war of the cultures. Was he? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Germany versus Italy. <laughs> Did he always say, I'm a Luigi. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to win. He, uh, he lost at backgammon and he jumped down a pipe. <laughs> <laughs> now, this could, he couldn't have been the first man to lose at backgammon since he was the world champion. No. Th- there's the, no way the computer. He was the first. The first to lose to a computer. The right. first person in, ever to lose a game to a computer. But the first champion. The computer had presumably beaten other weaker players. Oh, I see what in you're the, saying. In the run-up to yeah, its, right. its big match with Luigi. Yeah, the, fir- the first time a computer... Uh, Challenged uh, the 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 reigning. The first time computer became better than all humans, right. I guess. Was it was it the sport of backgammon? Although although Hans Berliner was uh, was quick to say that the computer had uh, gotten a lot of good dice rolls, uh, so it it uh, the computer had luck on its side. God smiled on the computer that day. That's a sign that God wants computers to take all our jobs. The, yeah, that's the, right. It's the first that domino. That was the first sign <laughs> before even Watson, back when computers took up a whole building. So, Ken, I have a problem. I assume you do. Which of your which of your several problems concerns you, John? Well, I went to an amusement park yesterday. That's not a problem. And that I sounds to, great. Well, I was a little under-amused. Um, the roller coaster was too flat. The fun house was not fun. <laughs> it's not. Uh, it's just a house. Uh, the lines were uh, super long. What I'm, what I'm telling you is I'm, I did not enjoy this amusement park. And the whole point there is enjoyment. So what, what is wrong with me? Is it me? No. Did you, were you filled with alienation? I'm the only one here not having fun. Uh, I mean, I, I always feel that way from the moment I wake up in the morning, but even more so here at this unfun experience I had at the amusement park. I don't think that's an uncommon 
experience. I mean, the fact is that today with so many pleasurable stimuli whizzing at us every second mm-hmm. due to the technological hell we've created for ourselves, we're on this hedonic treadmill, and that includes amusement parks. Everything just seems less fun than it should. But there is a group for folks like you. Huh? Tell me more. I am texting you right now the number for the Ride Enhancers Collective. The Ride Enhancers Collective. This is a group dedicated to making amusement parks better for underamused people like you. Um, even even you, John. They came up with the idea. For, they're the ones, for example, that came up with the idea of putting Legos, uh, bins of Legos in the lines at Legoland. Well, see, now that's a genius idea. Uh, well, if they can... If they can help me enjoy Legoland more, well, surely they can help me enjoy any amusement park. No problem, John. And I want to uh, extend this offer to all of our amusement-impaired listeners out there. Please, if John's experience resonates with you, check out the Ride Enhancers Collective. Use the code OMNIBUS at checkout for a special discount. Now, that's the Ride Enhancers Collective with an OMNIBUS code at checkout. I never think of backgammon as a particularly Eastern game, which is funny because chess, I'm always like, ah, the great Persian Indian game of chess. But, but backgammon seems to me to be played by, I don't know, old old European men at a club or right. or at a, at a waterfront resort of some kind. Go on. It's got, it seems, because it's got felt, I don't know, it looks like a gambling, it looks very grown up to me. You know, chess, I feel like. Uh, it's just a kid's game. It, well, it's not a kid's game, but it's academic. It looks like checkers. Right. It looks like something that you know you you, you should be taught uh, just to be a, a good citizen. Whereas, but also the figures in chess evoke a kind of medieval sure. crusadey kind of world, and definitely the kind of militaristic thing you're talking about. It's right. a it's a war game in miniature. Whereas the aesthetic of backgammon seems very much as a kid, it seemed to me to be kind of a James Bond. Like this is a forbidden part of adulthood. There's felt. There's dice. There's gaming. Maybe there's a woman draped around your shoulders. It's not that at all, but it, it felt like, you know, craps or something like that to me as a kid. Well, in fact, it was that. And you are, you, your memory is being affected by a, a period of time where backgammon went from being a kind of ancient and esoteric drawing room game like cribbage or, or any number of, you know, of sort of similar. It's like an old folks home old activity. Old folks home activities. To uh, to a brief period, about a, about a decade or two, where backgammon was an extremely fashionable, high stakes, uh, grown up casino game being played by all the stars and celebrities, and uh, appearing in films, and um, and being you know kind of featured in profiles in the New York Times. This is so improbable. It must have been a CIA plot. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what national interests were served. But can you imagine trying to explain to someone now that you know something as random as backgammon used to be a glamorous worldwide fad? Well, I can't imagine it because I'm actually trying to do that right now. <laughs> it would, but it would be like telling somebody, "Hey, you know, snakes and ladders was uh, was always played by you know the 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 jet set during the Eisenhower." I mean, it's it's weird, right? Well, and in fact, there. Yeah, once you introduce the idea of a conspiracy or that the CIA was involved, maybe it, um, maybe you, those fires will be stoked by the fact that backgammon was popularized in the mid '60s by a white Russian uh, mm. by the name of Prince Alexis Obolensky, who was a was, member of a was he real prince or fake prince? He was a real prince, yeah. a descendant of uh, a Russian aristocracy who was born immediately before the Russian Revolution, and then his family escaped the Bolsheviks, as we all are trying to do. And uh, <laughs> Every time I go to the ballot box. <laughs> and ended up, uh, ended up in New York, and he was raised here in New York as kind of, you know, in, a, in, a, um, in the style of uh, the white Russians of the time, which is yeah, to say— Yeah, this was not unusual at the time. Yeah. Europe and, and, and America were crawling with these dispossessed— Barons and aristocrats, and they didn't have a they they weren't able to escape with all their money, but they did have their titles and they had their heirs, and so what did they have heirs or did they have put on heirs? They had both heirs and they put on heirs, and so you you often see in in literature of the time or, or popular culture this trope of a kind of Russian aristocrat 
who maybe has a Fabergé egg hidden under the mattress, but has to scramble and becomes kind of a, a you know, a, a player and a, and a huckster. Often there's some kind of a, they could attach themselves to a wealthier household. That's right. And everybody's happy to have Alexei teaching their daughter voice lessons. And yeah. Uh, or they, they and he's a comical they Slavic figure. Marry a much older heiress and uh, esquire her around wearing a monocle. It's a, it's, it's a fairly, it's a, it's it's a very fairly commonplace twentieth century they're, notion. They're figures of fun in old movies, right? Which is very sad <laughs> because these people used to be able to whip any of the serfs they wanted. Well, it's and now sad. They have to... It's sad unless you enjoy dispossessing uh, the uh, the one percent. Oh, which seeing, I absolutely do. <laughs> seeing them in squalor. Me and my Trotskyite dads are always talking about this at the book club. <laughs> seeing them wander around backgammon clubs looking for a, looking for a game. But one of and and Alexis Oblensky. You know, he dabbled. He was a dabbler, like a lot of uh, a lot of us uh, fallen aristocrats. Uh, Do you but, consider yourself to be? Uh, oh, my father's with uh, my father's family. Yeah, my father's mother's family definitely uh, also sort of a, uh, put on airs of having been descended from, and and not incorrectly descended from the. Landed gentry of the South in the United States. So my great, 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 great grandfather was uh, a slave owner. <laughs> well, well a, a lot of them were. Yeah. But he was Thomas Page, who was a colonial governor of Virginia mm. before the revolution and Thomas Jefferson's college roommate. So Thomas Jefferson's college roommate. Yeah. So we have this connection to the, to the colonial era and, and his descendants all through Virginia, you know, migrated to Kentucky because if you've and, sat in a beanbag chair and smoked weed with Thomas Jefferson, hey, you get brah. whatever you want. But by the time they moved out here to Washington, they had no money or influence. At the end of the Civil War, in fact, we have a, in the family a document where um, President Grant pardons my only four great – five great-grandfathers away, pardons him for his rebellion against the Union. And, uh, and as part of that pardon – He's not allowed to uh, ever take up arms against the nation again. But also, they lost everything, right? I mean, they lost the plantations. They lost the— It's not a very good pardon if it has that clause in it. Yeah, right. What kind of a pardon is that, President Grant? Sure, it's a little bit of like, you know— If you're really going to pardon me for the old stuff, then let's leave the future to the future. Yeah, pardon me for everything. Maybe I'm going to lead another insurrection. That's Hey, that's the gamble you take. Well, they moved out here to Washington— and uh, and continued to kind of lead insurrections, but not ones that were that look very good. Not that the Civil War looks very good either. But they. But they, nobody's made uh, nostalgic movies about the other. Your, no, your, not really. Your they, ancestors' I, other I, I rebellions. Have, there are an awful lot of of uh, black sheep in in my family. You might you might say that at least on that side, I'm kind of one of the. Just I'm one of the gentler ones. Knifing your neighbors to take over <laughs> their their fields or their or their. Mining claim is not not an insurrection so much. No, that's right, that's right. Um, but so those people, those those of my ancestors, did kind of waltz around with a lot of sense of not not just entitlement, but of you know to the manner born kind of idea of themselves. Temporarily down on their heels, just down on their heels. But 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 they will win the day. Their superiority will 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 be revealed. And it was a lot. It was a lot as a kid to to kind of shake off because I, you know, it, that, that is a pernicious mentality. But it does explain some of your kind of white Russian, uh, you know, your, uh, you know, you, you come from a long line of confidence and talent and prestige and you bring that with you in any room. And that should be part of the perks of being friends with John Roderick <laughs> and letting him stay at the Chateau Marmont with you. Right. <laughs> that, and also, uh, uh, that family in particular, uh, always had children late in life. So my grandmother was born in 1886. So I'm only one generation removed from a very Victorian uh, it, way of speaking. It would be funny if that's why they did it. Let's have our children late so that generations are very long, <laughs> and therefore we can say we're more closely. All of our heirs will be more closely connected. <coughs> that's right. To, to days of antiquity and yore. That's right. I, and I, with, they'll have the accompanying prestige. I'm a knowable distance from uh, from all the great events of of uh, American history. Your dad was college roommates with <laughs> William Henry Harrison. My uncle was uh, was in college with both William F. Buckley and George Herbert Walker Bush. They oh. were all they were all members of the same little little uh, cadre, secret society. Yeah, 
um, and my uncle's still alive, whereas the other two are not. So who wins? Was the there, Rodericks again. Was there a tontine? <laughs> <laughs> when Barbara Bush died, he's like, I'm so close, I can taste it. Yes! Made it! Um, so this particular white Russian. But this white Russian began. Backgammon. He did. And during this post-war period, like you, like you, you hinted at the fact that uh, white Russians were kind of thick on the ground. Um, but, but after the war and, and in the period between the wars, there was a, a migration of wealthy Europeans um, to the United States to, because the rise of fascism, the rise of Bolshevism, the, um, the upheaval and instability in Europe meant that a certain class of people kind of would rather take their – Take their gems and go. Take their gems and go. That's right. Take their chances in New York City rather than uh, than wait for various armies to run over your little uh, duchy in, in Moravia. So there, there was a kind of um, – there was a lot of European culture that, uh, that came to the United States and formed a, a sort of social – less intellectual but more social – world in the u.s and the americans have always felt i think we're bereft of that kind of sophistication right we are and We've we and we, and we crave it yes. uh, or a certain segment of america has always craved the endorsement of of uh of a prince or uh, you know the 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 history that it brings but also the sense of of privilege or of belonging I blame literature. Like it's, it seems very glamorous to have a, a Dauphin yeah. and a man in an iron mask and all that. And if you, you know, if you're the, all your ancestors, all your ancestors can claim is that they, you know, started the first cereal mill <laughs> in Grand <laughs> right. Rapids or whatever. Perfected the plow. It's uh, it's not the same. So literature teaches you you know that's the good world that you must have and we're a country without it and it's part of the and it exists even now in the sense that people in Europe or even in Canada kind of look at look down at Americans as coarse as um not because of anything we've done of course well but 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 because of this um in a way because the meritocracy the meritocratic mentality of the United States means that someone who works hard but has no class can end up with enough money to to walk into Buckingham Palace. That's the stereotype. The yeah. vulgar American millionaire who's like, "Wow, you got some nice things here, but you should come down to our place." That's right. And and that and that uh that stereotype kind of filters down to a general attitude about uh, about Americans as not having uh whatever it is, the the ineffable uh sort of class uh, even if you, even as a European or, or or Canadian or someone someone who disavows the negative um, aspects of a class based society, you can still you can still look down your nose at someone that has less class than you feel you have. We also had a, for much of the 20th century, we had a suddenly affluent middle class who could travel, right? And so suddenly, European restaurants who were accustomed to dealing with people who knew how to act in a European restaurant. Suddenly had a flood of people who didn't, and they were American. They were American, and they had invented a new kind of plow, or their grandfather had. And here <laughs> and they, they were. they were going to tell the waiter what was what. This, right. this, uh, this soup is cold. Why are there too many oui, forks monsieur. on the table? This is a vichyssoise, but it's cold. Take it back. I mean, we all love that. Uh, we, we love teasing <laughs> Americans as much as anyone. But in the 1950s and early 60s, uh, as Europe recovered from World War II and was cheap for Americans to travel. And also we had a, we had a generation of, of veterans who had been to Europe. Yeah. And now had show their families. That's right. Had been now had families now had some money to spend and wanted to go back and go to France and go to, go to Italy and Switzerland and, and revisit these places. Some of them had PTSD and did not. Right. But But we think about the ones who got out psychologically unscathed and are excited to show. And I, I don't know how many American servicemen took their families to Okinawa uh, or right. to, to Leyte, but they but going to Paris is kind of um, is something maybe that your wife or your kids would yeah. be interested. We're not in. going to go to Normandy, but uh, but I had a great weekend in Paris. <laughs> and so all of that kind of sophistication, the uh, the idea that we have that Europe has has um, 
has a, uh, a level of kind of uh, culture and understanding that we can, we can only get by buying it or by <laughs> rubbing elbows with it. Or acquiring some skill. Acquiring some skill at yeah, it. And like right? It might be ordering a drink or, in this case, it might be the rules of backgammon. Well, so we, we, see, we see in this period a lot of European influence in the United States. And it comes, I was thinking about the Russian tea room. The tea, that was classy to go have borscht. The Central idea Park. of a sports car, even. Yeah. Um, the idea of a, of a small, lightweight car that you can zip around narrow roads. This wasn't, not a, this wasn't an American America mentality. did not have narrow <laughs> roads hugging a mountainside. No, we had big, flat, wide roads. That's right. Our, cars, uh, our instinct was to build cars that could just go super straight and fast. How, how wide is the lane? Okay. I want fins <laughs> that are that width. Let me get right out to the edge. Uh, but but you, we see it in, in uh, the popularity of James Bond. Yeah, we see it in um, uh, in the the kind of exoticism of espionage as a thing that took uh, that took hold of our imaginations because we were at war with we were in a quiet war with the with the East. And it's not an American spy. It very easily could have been an American spy. But whether it's the dapper James Bonds or the kind of you know prosaic John le Carré heroes, we prefer them to be European. That gives them an extra cachet. Right. And, and, and the ability to, uh, well, I mean, what James Bond did was fight the cold war by looking good and, and being super good at, at, uh, at, at dice, right? Yes. Golf and sex. Right. And yeah. Mm. And knowing what to order. Golf exactly. and sex. That's right. Knowing what is, what, knowing that the soup was meant to be cold. Getting mad at a bartender for making a martini the right way. But so Prince Oblensky manipulated this cultural moment and started to started to promote backgammon as a um, as a game of the cultured, the aristocrats, the uh, it was a like a, a secret and lost art that was popular in the drawing rooms that Americans only could dream of having access. Was this true in any sense? Was it a relic of those drawing rooms? Well, when Backgammon made it to Europe really early, uh, presumably with the, with the Roman legions, but it became like so many wonderful things in medieval Europe, um, became kind of the province of the, uh, the moneyed classes. I mean, who, who had the no, time? No one else has time to play a game <laughs> after dinner. You can right. fall into bed. And so it was a it was an aristocratic pastime, and it went through several iterations in relationship to the church. There were there were quite a few periods where the church would come out against backgammon because it seemed like a game of chance, or it was a you know it was it was prohibited, it was banned, but but it always remained a secular pastime, and there there are tons and tons of um, references to tables as it was called in all of the medieval you know literature but also kind of just the daily accounts people's diaries you 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 see kings talking about it being a um a diversion in their court and people were gambling over games uh and pretty I assume that's why the church was not into it church wasn't into the gambling aspect but but it, the church was never able to stamp it out and it didn't really ever it didn't percolate down to become a game of the street any more really than chess did um because it would be funny if a bunch of guys in an alley you know after they're done parking the cars they're all playing dice but they they've got a backgammon game a backgammon board <laughs> on the ground they've got the dice and they've got the doubling cube and everybody's throwing their money down <laughs> right. like you know yelling at the game that's what i want uh so it was a it was a a, a genteel game um but but had always kind of, and in fact, the name uh, the name backgammon is a is a, a old English. I don't even know. Gammon is something in the game. Gammon is well, gammon in backgammon is a aspect of the game, but gammon is just old English for game. Oh, so backgammon just means back game. Do do we know what the back is in reference to? Well, is it something yeah, about the mechanics of the game? It is because you can, as you're making progress toward your uh your safe zone in the game of backgammon if someone lands on your checker they send you all the way back mm. so it's one the, of these games that's named after a bad thing that happens during the game like 
sorry. Like shoots and ladders, yeah. right? <laughs> well, the shoots are the ladders are great. Yeah, it's the shoots. Uh, shoots will get you. Yeah. So backgammon. I mean, I, I I'm hoping that uh, most futurelings, uh, regardless or irregardless of their corporeal forms or lack thereof, still have enough tentacles or imaginary tentacles to be able to play backgammon because it's the oldest game and hopefully it will it will retain that title. I like how that's your assumption about no matter what your species, we know you you must love backgammon. You're still playing backgammon, For right? sure. Because once you have an oldest game, you don't stop playing that and your new oldest game is Ms. Pac-Man, right? I mean, you have to You keep... will always have the oldest games and the newest games. Right. It's the ones in between that get forgotten. Um, but the way backgammon is played you know, each player uh, arranges, a se- arranges a series of checkers um, in different groupings. It, on- has, it has triangles, too, which, so the tri- which seems a little transgressive because, you know, good games have squares. Yeah, and the, the triangles are, are the points where your, your checkers land. Yes. And you can stack your checkers up, um, but if you ever leave a checker on a point where it's not stacked with another one, like if you have two stacked there— uh, it's kind of the, in this similar to the way that uh, that a pawn can be protected by mm-hmm. another pawn diagonally. Yeah, um, a checker that's on top of another checker can't be um, can't be bounced, can't be jumped upon, can't be gammoned. Can't be. Uh, is that what it is? Gammoned? No, I no, don't think no so. I don't think so either. I don't really know how to play backgammon very well, <laughs> um, but. So but, a lot of people who are listening to this in hopes of unearthing the rules to backgammon are going to be disappointed. Well, and there are a lot of people who know backgammon really well who are like, I can't believe these two ding-dongs. We are going to get so many letters. If you are if you are in the future and looking f- for the rules of backgammon... Stop listening. Uh, please get your shovels out uh, and dig for, the, for our jeweled hair. Because what's really fun is talking about the cultural impact of something. That's right. And that's what we're going to do. That's right. We assume you don't want to play the game. You can, f- you can figure, you can find the music of the Rolling Stones on your own. We're going to talk about the <laughs> culture of the Rolling Stones. Uh, but if, you're, if your checker is unguarded, it can be returned all the way to the start of your progress across the board. And you have to then begin again to move... Uh, throughout the entire game, right? And so you can have you can have all of your checkers in the safe zone at the end of the board, and one remaining, and that checker can be bounced all the way back to the front, and you have to go through this whole it's dramatic this whole process again. It's just like life. You think you've got everything sewn up, and then one little thing goes wrong, and it literally takes you back to square one. And so much of this is is down to a roll of the dice. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that there has been this confusion over the centuries, you know, how much of this is a game of chance? How much of it is a, Do a, we know? a sport? In some cases you can model it. You can run a million computer simulations and say poker is this percent luck and this percent chance. And now we do know that, that, um, that a skillful backgammon player has an advantage over time. Although the, the, um, and very much like poker, I mean, uh, a skillful poker, poker player can beat the odds of the game. And that's true of backgammon too. As recently as the 1980s, there was a lawsuit in the state of Oregon. Um, the state of Oregon sued a man by the name of Ted Barr for running a backgammon tournament, and they said because of, because of the, the the dice element, it was a game of chance, and therefore it was subject to being regulated by their gaming authorities. Like it was it was just basically basically like buying a uh, a lottery ticket, and the state of Oregon wanted to tax it as a lottery. But in the in the the presentation of the case, the judge determined that that it was a game of skill, and so Ted Barr prevailed. And that was you know that was as recently as 1982. It's interesting, like what? Yeah, what? How much skill is required to make something a game of skill? Yeah, well, I mean, enough that that poker is, um, and even blackjack is, which seems like you know blackjack. Really, is- there's case law saying that blackjack is a game of skill. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's you, not. You, you've got four chances, and there's always uh, four choices. And there's always a right one. That's right. You know, you you um, you can beat the game of blackjack if you if you have uh, if you're counting the cards and if you know the the right move at any given moment. But you get kicked out of the casino. If you, you get kicked out of the cards. casino. You have to wear a fake mustache. That's right. They don't want people who can win. 
There wouldn't be any casinos if everybody won. <laughs> you know, we have a friend uh, who is a professional blackjack player. Who plays blackjack? Who who is a who is a blackjack player that's banned in um, in casinos around the country and and I think maybe even around the world. Um, do I not know who this is? Well, I don't think you do. Um, our good friend Stephanie Drury. Oh, is married to a man named David Drury, who uh, played in a band called Tennis Pro here in Seattle. And David is a world famous card counter and blackjack player who has been escorted out of every casino in the West. I've read about this. People start to develop disguises in, yeah. hopes, in hopes of outwitting the guys at the cameras looking for card counters. They don't and have to let you play, apparently. No, they don't. They can and kick he, out whoever they want. He continues to go play play uh, professional blackjack in places because I guess there are enough casinos that either don't bother kicking him out or don't know to kick him out. I mean, in the past, it was all manual. At some point, their casinos will adopt facial recognition. I think, right? they, they, I think they're they working have. on it now or they mm-hmm. haven't, yeah. Anyway, uh, Prince Oblensky started to popularize this as a, as a way of sort of social climbing. You know, he, he put on his ascot and started promoting backgammon as a, um, as a kind of, let me show you the new thing in Europe. That's right. Or let me, let, let me introduce you to, let me, and he, the thing is he, he left, uh, he left Russia when he was two or three years old. But almost certainly affected a, a glamorous accent while doing this. Even though all these guys were probably raised in Paris or Vienna, right? The doubling cube is an American invention, in fact, and the, and the doubling really? cube was something that that transformed backgammon play from something where I mean, if you're if you're betting on points, which is how the game is normally how you normally bet, um, you can, you know, you can wager up to whatever you. Um, whatever amount you put on on a on a point, mm-hmm. but there it doesn't have that poker aspect where you can raise once you see that you're doing well. You can put the other person into a posture where they have to either have the confidence to play out the game, or they can be bullied or cowed into. Um, into surrendering. And there's no bluffing in backgammon because everyone can see the whole game situation. There's no hidden information. Right. There is cheating if in the form of loaded die. Oh, right. Um, which, which is the kind of... Um, is that how the computer won? It's a, it's a, it's a plague on the game of backgammon. Uh, and that actually becomes a plot point in the James Bond film Octopussy, which we'll cover in a minute, I hope. <laughs> uh, but... Um, but the doubling cube was introduced in New York City in the 1920s as a as a way to 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 kind of up the stakes and to say like okay you know I hereby challenge you now to double our stakes and then the your opponent can say like I double your double stakes and the did, cube did that spread worldwide or is there still a non-American version of backgammon that does not have the doubling cube backgammon remains super popular in in Armenia and Greece and Egypt and I think. Uh, I think in general, the doubling cube has kind of gone out into global backgammon. Yeah, but I think USA. I mean, I don't play with the doubling cube. You you can still play backgammon without using it because you can play backgammon without betting. Yeah, um, it, it's it's you can't really play poker without betting. <laughs> I learned to play poker as a kid on an airplane with no betting, and I was like, why does this game exist? Yeah, right. This game sucks so hard. You have to bet matchsticks or, or pieces of chewing gum or something to make poker right. have any meaning. The card-related rules of poker are dull. Backgammon, you can actually just take the satisfaction in—, in because backgammon has a real in-your-face aspect to it, because you can choose not to crush your opponent— you can use the di- the dice rolls to uh, to try to win while also allowing your opponent to to go on their merry way, um, but you can also you can also play it as a very competitive, very like crush your enemies style too. And this is one of the way. I mean, this is true also of billiards, where part of what makes the rules difficult to remember is that some of them are are um, maybe not obvious in in terms of like what the necessity is. Like uh, there are rules of backgammon that say you must take the best play or you must take, you must play the dice a certain way. 
and you can ignore that. Right in this uh, uh, same way in billiards, you can say you can kind of make up your own uh, rules around the fringe. Um, and is that related to this idea that uh, you can choose how gentlemanly to be to your opponent in a, in a casual game? If you're playing a tournament game, no, the rules apply. But if you're sitting around with your kids and playing gack, backgammon, and you see an opportunity to send them to their rooms crying. You're not obligated to, right? You can, and and you're not obligated to, and you're and you wouldn't be fake losing. You know, you could, you can play around one another. But there is that tradition in European sport that uh, fair play is maybe more important than it would be in its American equivalent. Like you see lots of uh, soccer-related discussions of, well, this guy did this thing that was legal, but now come on, we don't play like that. He was right. pretending to fall over, you know. And I think in backgammon, no, the uh, the, the it. You uh, well, yes, you're you're right. Let me take that back. There is a sense of decorum in backgammon, and you can play the game coarsely, mm. where people go. What, what is that? What What are the vulgar strategies? Yeah, the the the, the vulgarity would be to. Um, I mean the 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 culture of backgammon is is extremely sophisticated. It's a it's an easy game to learn and an easy game to play, but a very difficult game to master. So, you know, I I wouldn't know, I wouldn't know what move in a backgammon game would cause offense, and uh, and to whom. But um, somebody might make a little tisking noise with their tongue. Yeah, as you as you bounced your checker along, and it's true in poker too. I mean, I play a regular game of poker with people who are better poker players than I am, and they're often disgusted with. Uh, with the way I play my hands, because it's not. There is a sense that you're bringing down the table somehow. I don't yeah. know if it's if there's a certain. It's still a a vestigial belief in a god who will not fr- smile on your table if the the play is not up to his standards. I won a tournament one time. I won nine hundred dollars by uh, by keeping a four five offsuit and betting before the flop. On a four or five offsuit. It's not a smart play. And, you know, and it flopped uh, two, six, seven. <laughs> That's just like you had in mind. <laughs> and the other guy had a pair of kings or whatever. Come on. And there was a, and a third king came up on the board and we were the, we were the last two players. And I'd been playing like this all night, just like, woohoo, I don't know what I'm doing. And I, and when the, you know, when we showed our cards, he, stood up from the table, threw his cards down, confronted me like, how dare you? And I was like, well, I don't know. And he was like, and he started yelling and everybody around the table was yelling at me. There were a lot of people at this event. I feel like all you need to do is let the laws of probability take care of that. Yeah. Like if somebody beats you once, you just got to suck it up. And I said, you know, I had a lot of money and I just, just playing the cards and four or five offseason looked good to me at the time. And there's no arguing, right? I mean, I won. I have a friend who's a championship bridge, contract bridge player. And that's very much like the culture of the game is almost more important than any other angle. Right. Because, you know, something about being at a table with people, it, it overlaps with a lot of our ideas about table manners and, and deference and courtesy. And yeah, it turns out there's a lot of ways to piss off your opponents at bridge without breaking a single rule. Backgammon has a lot of that and some of it is affectation and some of it really is baked into the kind of the feltedness of the board the 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 satisfying sound of the dice in the oh, yeah. leather cup people i i'm i'm friends with a game designer and he thinks a lot about the game aesthetic of, yep. uh, if the board jiggles a little bit people are going to be 2% less likely to play it you know yeah right it looks cheap they have to they think about that kind of stuff in great detail well so uh so our our uh, prince obey um, succeeds in making this game popular among uh, a certain kind of expatriate class right at a time when that class was being um, what had become a f- uh, sort of a, a fascinating uh, like old world to the new moneyed class in the United States. And so almost, almost uh, predictably – Backgammon then became a fixture at the Playboy clubs because Hugh Hefner, mm. who was always looking for a way to velvetize himself and 
and I mean, Hugh Hefner, to his credit, uh, was somebody who integrated his clubs and his, um, and the entertainment in his clubs a long time before that was happening in other places in the U.S. the ethos of Playboy as a magazine is that you can be a Playboy. That's right. It's kind of a, it's a guide to emulate. So there is, there is some sense that it's not just for a smart set that does not include you. Right. Here's how you tie a bow tie. Here's how you drive an, uh, an Austin Martin. And here's how you play backgammon. And so backgammon became kind of a way of, that Hugh Hefner sophisticated the, the Playboy universe. That's funny. And it went from there in the way that faddish games do. Uh, it, uh, no one could quite remember where the origin of it was, but suddenly everyone who was, everyone in 1969 who wanted to demonstrate their class and sophistication started to play backgammon. And just by, like Texas Hold'em in the in the early two thousands, very much like that. And and by um, by like nineteen seventy two, the uh, the main sort of makers of backgammon boards reported that you know in seven nineteen seventy two alone they sold more backgammon games than in the ten years prior combined. Like the game just exploded, and suddenly you saw it everywhere. Uh, there's a famous picture of Mick Jagger and Jerry Hall playing backgammon <laughs> in Montserrat. And um, it was something you could, it was portable and, uh, and you could sort of set up a little backgammon game and, and you could play it fairly quickly, much more so than chess. And you can play it casually while you're doing other things. That's right. Unlike chess, right? That's right. You could keep a backgammon game going. You could you could walk up on a backgammon game and and knowing whose turn it was, kind of suss out the board pretty quickly. I feel like I can't even see a backgammon board today without kind of smelling Benson and Hedges hundreds. You know, like it just smells like 1970s cigarette smoke to me. The first world championship was held in Vegas in 1967. And then uh, it kind of moved around. The, 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 the first champion was a man by the name of Tim Holland, which, who also, you know, not maybe uh, coincidentally, was also a, a bridge champion. There were a lot of people coming from other, from chess champions and from, um, you know, from other sort of similar sports that also had a gift for backgammon. But because this has a big purse. That's right. And, and, and the purses started to... Um, started to grow there was a there was a uh, a style where a rich fan could actually kind of buy an interest in a in a backgammon player and say like oh. you know I'll put up the money but then I you know I collect the winnings you could have backgammon players in in tournaments actually playing on your behalf uh and and the uh, the game exploded and the purses exploded the uh, the world championship moved to the Bahamas for a while, kind of in the mid seventies, in keeping with this, Bond, yeah, this sort of Sean Connery vibe, and then uh, maybe not um, not surprisingly moved to Monaco, and Monaco is still where the world backgammon championships happen today. So this continued, and it's funny. There's no history of of uh, international backgammon tournaments until it just gets invented from the whole cloth, even though it's such an old game. Right. Uh, uh, and, uh, and an old game, an old game. I mean, you know, backgammon was considered, backgammon is old enough that it, that it's uh, haram in the Quran by name. Oh, interesting. Uh, like, is that, Mah- why, is that why Omar Sharif plays bridge? <laughs> Muhammad He's not said, allowed to play backgammon. Said that if you, uh, if you play backgammon, it's like putting your hand in pig's blood. Well, I don't like it either, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far, Muhammad. <laughs> and what what ended up happening was that, like a lot of games, it uh, that became super faddish. Um, and and this also was a period in the mid seventies where chess was very faddish because the Fisher Spassky yes. uh, Championship made it um, like this tremendous global now uh, spectator sport. And then the dawn of the first chess. Um, you know, play along chess or electronic chess boards made it kind of a real focus of nerd culture. The kind of people who, who might've been interested in chess clubs anyway, were suddenly reinvigorated by, it seemed like it was a futuristic thing now. And backgammon, I think got some, got uh, a little bit of associative uh, popularity as a result of, you know, chess being kind of hard to play. Bookstores were just full of backgammon books. Yeah. 
You know, like you, you need to have this on yourself. It's the backgammon lifestyle. And so it fell out of fashion in the mid eighties, partly because the game just had run its course, partly because, um, the, uh, the rise of this sort of next generation of games, the trivial pursuits, the scrabbles, um, d- kind of diffused the energy around, uh, around this kind of board game. There was old, a series board of board game. game fads that were, that worked better as, as party games for, yeah. for, uh, for yuppies, you know, it, all your friends can sit around and play. Well, first it was trivial pursuit. Then it was Pictionary. Then it was taboo and cranium. There was always a kind of a new, game to play with your and you can have four people playing instead of it being a head-to-head game Yeah, it's a party there is a form of backgammon that three people can play or multiple people can play but it's like two people comprise a team and they play against another person oh Uh, i don't like that kind of thing yeah it's a little it's it's called chouette i don't understand it either just play it right but then the the ultimate the ultimate death knell or death blow to backgammon as a as a, a sport of kings or, or, you know, like a tournament that would have a bunch of tuxedoed people standing around was the rise of, of competitive Texas Hold'em mm. and the, the, the popularity of it, the, the, the greater stakes, the knowability of, of a card game. Uh, you can look at a hand of cards, have it explained to you and instantly be, in the game, whereas even backgammon with its simple rules kind of is a little bit more opaque. Those players have mystique, but no kind of old world class, right? Like even the guys who are trying to dress up look like RAVs in the poker world. And I think that wasn't true maybe in 1967. If you were playing, if you were sitting and playing poker at a, at a table in Monaco, you may have had a, a, maybe an air of sophistication a little bit better than now where people are wearing baseball caps with, with Poker All Stars uh, sticker stuck to the to the to the front of it. You got to have your wraparound sunglasses yeah. to to scare off the competition. And some of that is is I mean, poker has changed a lot with the rise of the internet. Um, but very recently, there's started to be a backgammon resurgence. The um, and and it is based, I think, largely in the nostalgia of people our age. Remembering our dads doing it? Remembering backgammon appearing in an advertisement for more cigarettes yeah. in uh, in Life magazine and looking at it. And as kids, feeling like it was a, a game that had that had adult sophistication we could never understand. There's a very narrow generation of kids that will fall for that. Right. Everyone before or after did not think of backgammon as a signifier of adulthood. So there is a kind of uh, Generation X millennial return to backgammon as a, a component of this, like, why don't we have quality things anymore? Why don't we do what what old people did and chop our own firewood? You know, a... a a return to yeah. innocence. Knitting and jigsaw puzzles and kind of that kind of stuff comes back too for the same reason. But what we're having is a nostalgia for an extremely brief <laughs> fad moment uh, where the game put on airs, uh, put on put on airs of of sophistication that it, that it never really had. We're like the last people to be tricked by backgammon, and that concludes backgammon. Entry 090.ex2816, certificate number 31179, in the omnibus. You never talked about Octopussy. Does that trouble you, that you left everyone hanging about Octopussy? Octopussy, backgammon plays a role in the film. I'm imagining Roger Moore dressed as a circus clown. Roger Moore is, a is wearing, a, he's wearing a white dinner jacket and playing backgammon against the arch villain. It's funny, they're, they're right on the end of the trend. Octopussy's 83. That's right. So James Bond, as always, is... You just, know, the movie's coming out right after the thing was actually popular. Just catching the tail end of it. Uh, but uh, but James realizes, and I call him James. Uh, he, he realizes, <laughs> Only the girls call him James. <laughs> he realizes that the bad guy uh, has loaded dice, and he uses his loaded dice to roll double sixes whenever he needs it. Has Q given him something that coincidentally will outwit loaded dice? Well, what James does is he says he has one last roll... And he says, uh, he evokes something called player's privilege. I'm sorry, he invokes something called player's privilege. 
He says, player's privilege entitles me to use your dice on my final roll. If so the, if so a, there's some code of backgammon. Yeah, if a player wants to wants to uh, use his opponent's dice, that's it's within the rules of the game. And he uses his he uses the bad guy's dice. He rolls double sixes and wins uh, wins the high stakes game. Now that is a complete fiction. Oh, there is there's no, no such, such rule. There is no such rule. But it but it uh, to the James Bond audience of 1983, it probably only added to the mystique of. Um, of this game they imagined. Speaking of mystique and sophistication, uh, in our time, uh, just regular average Joes who wanted to part- uh, partake in that could follow John and me on social media at, at John Roderick or at Ken Jennings uh, or at Omnibus Project. And really, uh, if you still have the ability to do that, you absolutely should. Think what a blessing it will be in your life to know the secrets of adulthood from there's no white Russians anymore except for the ones that the dude drinks. So John and I really are all you have. The, well, the grandsons and daughters of white Russians are still, I'm sure, hanging out in the student lounge at Brown <laughs> University, <laughs> saying that their names are Alexis de de von Schminkelhein. How did they get in? Uh, well, they're not in the school. They're just <laughs> in the. They're just in the student lounge. They're just always hanging out in the lounges. Uh, you can send us email at beyondthisproject at gmail dot com. In our era, uh, there was a government uh, provided system of couriers that would bring us physical objects through the U.S. mail. Uh, for example, here's a long defense of Southeast Ohio for you, John. Oh, boy. Uh, including recommendations of where you should stay. No, I'm, thanks. I'm supposed to attend the weekly trivia contest at Pomeroy's Maple Lawn Brewery. Uh, do, do we get to go by, uh, go by the house where the the serial killer from Silence of the Lambs had a... <laughs> the his, real one or the fake one? <laughs> his creepy dungeon. And then there's a whole printout of some kind of concert series. In Southern Ohio? In Southern Ohio. G.E. Smith of the Saturday Night Land Live Band will be there. Sure. Uh, he was married to Gilda Radner. He was married to Gilderud. Very good. Good good 70s SNL trivia. Thank you. Uh, the rest of these I've never heard of. But printouts of all of them, that's very helpful. Thank you. Our friend Sparky sent us a postcard. He's on the road now at some kind of train museum, I think. He looks seems to be behind. Looks like he's in California. It's behind some kind of oh, yeah. locomotive. Uh, locomotives have the worst instrumentation. I disagree. It's Strongly. Well, ergonomically, there's problems. All the little things are everywhere. You've got to have 10 hands. Well, yeah, because they're all mechanical instruments. They're not like they're not digital. Re- redesign that stuff. Give me, even if it's analog, give me a panel for crying out loud. Well, I mean, a diesel locomotive does not have that many controls. A diesel locomotive has like a brake and a and a throttle and a horn. It doesn't give me a lot of confidence that the whole thing is this whole enterprise appears to be controlled by just hundreds of faucets that all have to be turned to the right. Well, that's what they are. <laughs> they are all hundreds of faucets. I guess that's what Steam is. Steam is a tricky thing. Uh, someone sent you the DVD of a Drew Barrymore movie called Mad Love that you almost appeared in. Oh, I was supposed to be in that movie. Uh, the person who sent it to you was an extra, in fact, in that movie. You could have met her. Oh, well, maybe and I did meet her on my not. way out as I was headed over to the Comet to get a beer. She sent me a haiku about a frog. You get a DVD, I get a haiku about a frog. This is the story of my life. Yeah, that's in keeping with our personalities. I got a trivia book, but only because I blurbed it. Uh... Oh, and uh, we each got a copy of... I love that you didn't even hold it up for me to see. You were like, oh, and here's my trivia book. It's called... In the pile. It's called Duh, 100 Bar Trivia Questions You Should Know. Don't you already have one? If you blurbed it, they should have sent you one. This was the one they sent me. I see. I don't want them to have my home address. Oh, I see what you're saying. That actually came from from the publisher. That's not a fan. This says... It's by the author. The blurb says, if I didn't already know everything, I would have learned so much here. So, yeah, awesome. I'm, a, I'm kind of a dick on the back of the book. Good work, good work. We also got, each got a copy of Little House on the Wasteland. Laura Ingalls Why? Laura Ingalls Why? Or We? Way? It, it's a, uh, it resets the uh, frontier adventures of the Ingalls family in some kind of post-apocalyptic nightmare scape. So they're oh. still living their hard scrabble life, but it's not because it's the 19th century. That's exciting. It's a, it's a great and kind of a mashup idea. I'm in fa- I haven't read this, but I'm in favor of it. Yeah, I support it too. It's so uh thank you Laura Ingalls why if you exist. Uh I forgot to start with I said I was going to start with the Patreon and I didn't. One of the most important things you can do is not to send us your uh, fan Laura Ingalls Wilder fan fiction, but to ensure the health of the omnibus, you could actually uh Make a pledge and become a supporter of the program at patreon.com slash omnibus project. 
you and your fellow donors can congregate at the Futurelings group on Facebook, where you are currently yelling at uh, people just for being good patriotic Canadians. Yes, I am. They had it coming. They did. They shouldn't have tried to be patriotic Canadians in no. our, on our Facebook page. No. They're gonna Save that for your Canadian omnibus. Is there a Canadian omnibus o- Omnibuses. <laughs> in Canada, they drive omnibuses. And uh, the similar subreddit. Uh, did I talk about the mail but not give the address? If you want to send us random things like this, you can send them to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, in the third or fourth time that backgammon has become a fashionable and sophisticated game. Every hundred years. We have no idea how long our civilization survived, and perhaps backgammon, like all of the topics in the omnibus, uh, is actually one of the harbingers of the end times. But we hope and pray that this catastrophe we fear either may never come or at least doesn't come until we and our immediate progeny are gone. Yeah, I'm not I'm not married to my grandkids. No. It's illegal in this state for one thing. Who I mean who even knows about your great grandkids? Like if they if they burn in a cataclysm, I mean sure, shed a, a tear for them. If but there's a title, I mean I'm not I'm not asking for them to. You but, just uh, don't want Caitlin and Dylan to experience any hardship in their lives. You no. want them to be That was my job. Right. That was my number one job is to keep my kids from getting hit by a meteorite and to, to and to raise them to be soft Americans who uh, who will be unprepared for <laughs> right for who, the eventual post meteorite fear uh, frenzy. Their only calluses are on the insides of their thumbs. But after that, after the first generation, I feel like I'm off duty. I've yeah. done my part. Here here. Uh, if uh, if the if the worst comes soon, however, before Ken and I meet our our natural end, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.